Honestly, uh, we could we could just go into a time of responsive worship because w- the message Rob gave was so powerful and so clear. I feel like, okay, uh, Holloway, don't flub this up. <laughs> you know, it was it was so that was so encouraging, and I'm really thankful to get to sit and listen to that and be ministered to before I open the word and have the responsibility of preaching. Um, if you drive into Rabin County, which is just below Franklin on the Georgia side, there's a sign there celebrating, and I don't remember the guy's name, but he played high school football there and then went to the NFL. And to the people in that county, he is, he is one of the prouder native sons that they have. And I remember several years ago, Zach and I, and I think Nikki was there, a group of us were ministering in just outside of Oklahoma City, and we're driving into Edmond, Oklahoma, and it was a sign that this was the home of Kelly Strug, Jones family, help me out, gymnast that broke her ankle and still nailed it in the, Carrie Strug, is that right? That was her home. Those people are proud of her. As they should be. She's an Olympic gold medalist. And um, so I think it's always fascinating to think about, you know, where people come from. And um, yesterday we, we went, rode bikes around town. I love riding, we call it urban assault. It sounds so intense, you know, the urbanization of Andrews take our bikes instead of going mountain biking we hop curbs and ride down sidewalks and get yelled at by the shop owners and the police actually we don't ride down sidewalks anymore because little hit a guy that was riding on the sidewalk in her car and he got in trouble because she didn't get a ticket because he wasn't supposed to be riding on the sidewalk and he rode across the sidewalk and hit little and anyway I'm getting sidetracked um that was a crazy deal. <laughs> it was a funny story. Um, but we were riding our bikes around town and we, we rode up uh, we rode up on the hill there, the flagpole hill. And if you've never walked up there, I encourage you to do so because there are monuments and memorials to the fallen sons of Andrews. And it's powerfully moving. Um, there is a monument there. There's a memorial to two brothers from Andrews who in World War II in June of 1945, this is at the end of the war, they're almost ready to, to be done and come home. And these two brothers, both assigned to some sort of air, air combat squadron, were shot down and killed a week apart. And I think that's, that's a native son to be proud of. You know, that's something to, to celebrate. Um, and it's, it, it was chilling and sobering to read then the names and service dates of these men that had, had died that are from this town. We actually rode the box over to the seminary or the cemetery. <laughs> I always get those two words confused, and that is, they are not synonymous, you know. Um, but we rode over to the cemetery, and um, and we we walked around looking at at different uh, headstones, and particularly Moses was interested in the ones that were those of veterans. So we spoke about, you know, pride in your town, and, and we're going to look at this story tonight where Jesus comes to his hometown, and the, the background of this story, you got to go back about a year 
because we're, we're about a year or so into Jesus' ministry where we are in our study in Mark. But if you go back in time, Jesus' ministry began right after, Luke tells us this, Luke records this, right after Jesus' public baptism, he goes out into the wilderness, and you remember he was tempted by the devil there. The devil comes to him and tempts him, and Jesus withstands those temptations and, and, and displays for us how you combat temptation and evil, and he, he defeats the devil. And, and then Matthew records that Jesus then comes out of the wilderness and begins his preaching ministry. And he goes around preaching, and, and uh, all over Galilee, people are coming to hear his message. So he's a very, very popular preacher. And then Luke tells us that Jesus comes to Nazareth. And at the time when he comes to his hometown, he had already been sort of establishing himself as a preacher. And when he gets to Nazareth, Luke says he did what he always does. He goes into the synagogue. So we know this was a pattern of Jesus' ministry. He would come into a town, and then he would go with authority into the synagogue and preach the fulfillment of the scriptures from the Old Testament. Kind of like what Rob was telling us about tonight. He, he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament laws and prophecies. And so that was his pattern. He would go into the synagogue, which if you're new to the Christian faith or you're a younger listener tonight, a synagogue was the, sort of like the Jewish form of, a, of, of church. So he would go into the worship service. He would preach. Well, he goes to his hometown. And when he gets to his hometown, he begins to preach. And the people are really moved by his message. Have you ever sat under the teaching of someone and you're really stirred? I can remember a handful of sermons that really stirred and impacted my life. And people are being really stirred and impacted. Jesus is preaching. And he gets to a point in the book of Isaiah where he declares himself to be the fulfillment of this 700-year-old prophecy. He's 30 years old. This is his hometown. And he says, I'm the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy from your most beloved prophet, Isaiah. And the people turn on him so aggressively that they, they in an uproar, march him from the church and take him out to the, the side of a cliff, and they're going to throw him off the cliff and literally murder him. And you can make an argument that it goes back to a law in Leviticus where if somebody blasphemed, or one form of blasphemy would be they claimed to be God, they claimed to be the Messiah, then they were to be executed. There was one guy that actually got stoned in the street by the Israelite people for blaspheming Yahweh. So they take, but it's sort of this moment of vigilante justice. They take him up to the brow of this cliff. They're going to throw him off. And then I love, it's one of my favorite little subtle moments in Scripture. It's like, but Jesus just walked through the middle of the crowd and left. Like, you know, he, he sort of displayed this authority. It's like, reminds me of, a scene in one of my favorite movies where a guy says, I don't think I want to let you do that today. He's talking about being arrested. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And Jesus is like, I don't think I'm going to let you kill me today. You know, he, he leaves. His time is not ready. He's going to be killed. He's going to lay, but he's, he would later say, I'll lay my life down. You won't take it from me. I'll lay it down. Then I'll raise it up again. So Jesus leaves the city. Then for the next year, he does incredible ministry works. And we've seen that in the first five chapters of Mark where he's shown to have authority, shown himself to have authority over evil spirits, over physical illness, over creation, 
over storms. Like at one point, we saw him literally calm a storm, a terrible storm, and it's so bad that all of the disciples are just so, I mean, it's not, the storm is so bad that when Jesus does what he does, it really, it sort of spins the disciples out. And then we see him in last week's text in Mark 5, literally, literally raise a dead person. He raises someone from death. And in that, he shows himself to have the ultimate power and authority. He has power and authority over life and death. And so Jesus has established himself. And then the word of what he's doing is just traveling all over the country. And he's in this region called Galilee, which is a region kind of like western North Carolina. It's a regional area. And in the middle, he's, he's sort of basing out of this town called Capernaum. And about 25 miles from Capernaum is his town called Nazareth. And so after a year of doing ministry, after they tried to kill him, he goes out and he starts preaching and healing and performing miracles and calling people. I mean, doing fantastic things. Have you all enjoyed the study of Mark? It's just like mind-blowing every week. Literally, you could introduce every sermon in Mark by saying, today we're going to see that Jesus has authority. Like literally every text, you know. And so people are talking about him. Y'all know how news travels. I mean, and I guarantee you, like, news travels and people, have you ever, have you ever heard somebody say something that you know is, a, is, like, completely untrue, but they say it like it's emphatically true? Have you heard that? And have you ever figured out who, who they is? <laughs> they say, and then they'll tell you some fact. Have you ever heard that? And I'm always just like, who is they? That's just what they say. But who is they? Well, you know, it's, it's they. I need you to cite a name and a place that you heard this, you know. Well, with Jesus, it wasn't rumors. No matter how big the story got, it didn't even do justice to what he really was doing. You should have seen it. I saw it with my eyes. He raised a dead person. Hey, did you hear this? They say Jesus raised the dead. No, 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 no. They don't say it. I saw it. Eyewitness accounts were being given. I saw it. Or Jairus steps up and says, no, 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 no. It was my daughter. We prayed and we were grieving over her loss. They say he here. Y'all ever hear about that gal down there that is outcast? I'm sure maybe she had a name. She got that discharge of blood. She was... By Levitical law, she was unclean and outcast by society. They say all she did was touch his jacket and got healed. No, no, no. She says, no, they don't say it. I'm her. It happened to me. And she gives testimony. People are giving witness and testimony to change lives. You can't argue with that. There's eyewitness accounts to the dead being raised, to people being fed with fish that had never swum before. Jesus making stuff out of nothing. Healing people with divine power. They say, you know why they say it? Because it's true. And Jesus is the talk of every town in that region. People are coming from miles around just to hear him or to look at him. And he never disappoints. He never lets anybody down. He always works according to the plan and the will of the Father. 
And in the middle of that, there's this moment where Jesus and the disciples are laboring and they're working. And it's in Mark 3. You can read it. We've, we went through it a few weeks ago, Mark 3, 20 and 21. So much is happening. Jesus and his disciples can't even sit down and have a meal. Like they can't even get a bite to eat. I was at the bank the other day, and one of the gals down there, she came walking in. It was like 2.30, and I said, where are you? What are you? Somebody said, she, yeah, I got there. Somebody said, she's on lunch break. And I was like, you take your lunch break at 2.30 every day? I'd be hangry, you know? She said, I take it whenever I can get a minute to run out and just get a break. Like, she's just busy, busy, busy. Jesus couldn't even sit down and, and take time to eat a meal with his disciples, and he's working, and he's laboring. And his siblings come up, his family, they get him, and they pull him aside, and they're like, going to try to take him back to their hometown and put him away because they think he's crazy because he's saying things like yeah i raised the dead because because i'm god because i have the authority to command people to repent so jesus comes back to nazareth after a whirlwind year of ministry and he's going to come back to the people the last time he was there i will tell y'all it makes me scratch my head to think they try to kill him. Last time he saw them was on the edge of that cliff. And now he comes back to Nazareth. And that's where the story picks up. I would say, before we get into the story, there's something for us to learn and be encouraged by that I, I want to point out, and it's this. Jesus is going to teach us how and show us how practically what it looks like to minister in an unbelieving world that is hostile to the gospel and rejects Jesus as Savior and Lord, and as a result, will reject us. More times than not, will reject us. So we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says this. We'll just work through the text. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, this would be significant because Jesus is establishing himself as a rabbi, which was an authoritative teacher in the Jewish religion. One of the things that uh, we could drill into that would be an interesting study maybe in your own time would be um, if you're a rabbi, you would, you would raise and train disciples or followers uh, in your work. So Jesus arrives in sort of this, uh, the, the authority or the position of a rabbi, and he comes back to his hometown and he brings his disciples with him, these young guys that are following him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So he, he waits until it's the Sabbath, and he goes back into the synagogue. Remember what happened last time? They tried to kill him. And many who heard him were astonished. So they're, they're blown away by his teaching. When he speaks, he speaks with authority. They said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And it's like what they're, what they're wrestling with is, we have never had somebody stand and preach with this kind of clarity and authority. Clarity and authority. You ever heard a loud hellfire and brimstone preacher that just screams and yells and seems mad and he comes down on everybody and he rants, but you're like, okay, he seems mad, but he doesn't seem to have authority and he definitely doesn't seem to speak with clarity. You know what I'm talking about? But then have you ever sat under teaching where you think, there is an authority to these words. When someone faithfully delivers the scripture, there is an authoritative weight that comes with that. I, one, of the, one of the people that have, has always been uh, helpful for me is I like to listen to the sermons of R.C. Sproul. We don't agree on everything, particularly baptizing babies. 
okay? But I love and appreciate his ministry, and he's gone to be with the Lord several years ago now. But there are these old YouTube videos where I, he must have been maybe in his 40s, and it's him teaching a Sunday school class. Have any of y'all ever seen that? And he's using a chalkboard. Kids, will ask your parents about what chalkboards are. <laughs> and and he's, he's doing his notes on a chalkboard. He's up there, and he's, and he's teaching. And you listen to him. And in one sense, he just seems kind of like this dorky, nerdy kind of guy. But when you dial in, there's authority because he's clearly teaching the Word of God. That's what happens when someone teaches the Scripture. There's authority. With Jesus, there's authority and clarity and wisdom and practicality and knowledge and a gaining of understanding. And so these people recognize it's not, there's no denying it. And then they speak to the mighty works that he's done because that would have already gotten back to them hey the guy y'all about threw off the cliff you thought it was impressive when he just walked right out of the middle of y'all and you couldn't do anything about it listen they're hearing the things that he's doing and they recognize that why are they so mesmerized by this why are they so blown away well they answer that in verse three is not this the carpenter the son of mary and brother of james and joseph and judas and simon are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him so they give us some insight. They say, he can't teach like that. He's a carpenter. Now, the word carpenter, if you do a, a word study on that, would, it could have referred to someone who worked, uh, you know, we, for us, my stepdad's a carpenter, trim carpenter, builds cabinets, very skilled guy. We have some really skilled carpenters in this church. When we think of the word carpenter, we're talking about woodworking. But in, that, in, in, in the use of that word, it could have been a stonemason. We have a retired uh, stone and brick mason in this church who did phenomenal work in his career, Jack Ellis. Um, it, could have, it, it would mean he was a tradesman. He built things. He did. And uh, there's an early first, second century guy named Justin Martyr, the guy we get the word, the, the word martyr from, I believe, who wrote that Jesus was known for building uh, yokes and harnesses. Isn't that interesting? You need a good harness or yoke built for your mules. Jesus' shop was, you know, up in t when he was in the work with his dad. So he's a tradesman. So these people are going, wait a minute. Because one of the other gospel writers says he's the son of the carpenter. So he grew up in the household and the business of a tradesman. So they're, part of what they're doing is they're going, this doesn't make sense. Because he hasn't been theologically trained. He's real, he makes a really good bridle, lays a heck of a wall, digs a really square and true footer. But how's he teaching Isaiah with authority? He hasn't been formally trained. Well, in, we know the secret, right? In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the author of all of Scripture. I thought about, I was like, how do you illustrate this? Imagine, imagine Elon Musk shows up at the training day over at the Tesla headquarters. And people are, are like, how does he know the training manual so well? They don't recognize him for who he is. Maybe he's got a disguise. Maybe it's like that show, Undercover Boss, you know. And they're going, this guy, man, he seems to really understand how this, this, this car works. How does he know? I mean, he was working in maintenance last week, and now he's telling us all about it. And really, it's like, oh, that's Elon Musk. He designed it, wrote it. 
the technologies from his brain. Like, Jesus is speaking with an authority that is greater than what you could learn at a theological seminary because at the seminary they learn about the scripture that came from Jesus, right? He's the source of all wisdom and scripture and holiness. But they're offended by it. They're like, isn't he, isn't he, isn't he any one of us? You hear that saying, familiarity breeds contempt. So they seem to be offended by this, and they seem to be uh, maybe, maybe a little offended that he would speak with authority. He, he can't talk to me like that. Is he being judgmental? He can't talk to me like that. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, it's important to understand uh, one of the other gospel writers, I believe it's Matthew, says he, he would do no work there. The idea is not that, that the um, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator was incapable of doing something that he wanted to do. The idea is that because of the faith that was lacking in these people, Jesus wouldn't work and move. And one commentator, my favorite, one of my favorite commentators, uh, William Hendrickson, he said of this, he said, part of the problem is nobody was coming to be healed. They're like, you want a harness built, he's your guy, but you got chicken pox or, you know, leprosy or whatever. Like, people just weren't coming to be healed. Everywhere he went, people traveled to see him. But there... That wasn't happening. And then it says a few, a few people came and were healed of their sickness. And Kent Hughes here said, and I appreciated this, Kent Hughes said what's happening at this point is people are showing up with the faith that Jesus is a miracle healer, but not the faith that he is the Son of God. They don't, there's no disputing that he has healed people. You can't dispute it. We got the eyewitness accounts. We got the stories that have come. They're like, I'm going to go over there and get healed by him. But they don't have the faith to submit to the carpenter from their town. By the way, Nazareth, about 60 acres in, in size. That's tiny. That's half the size of this property that we're on. About 500 people. Uh, R.C. Sproul said this. It's fascinating. Let your imagination go here for just a second. This is not, we don't know this to be true. Four miles from Nazareth. In the early life of Jesus, Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, built what he would consider the regional capital. So the Galilean capital, a city called Tiberias. You ever heard of Tiberias? Look on your Bible map, you'll see it. It's right there in Galilee. So Herod Antipas comes up there and he, and he builds this city. And at the middle of the city, he builds a, a palace for himself. This is going to be, he, he's a regional king. This is going to be like his regional headquarters. And history tells us, there's history that documents that he used local district area tradesmen, the same word, carpenters. What if Jesus as a young boy and his dad, who was a reputable carpenter, even worked in Tiberias to build that? See, not fascinating? Stuff like that. Some of you may be not interested. Stuff like that is super fascinating to me. We don't know. I felt safe telling you that story because Sproul said it, so he's going to be with the Lord. Can't argue with him, you know, like wouldn't, wouldn't matter anyway. He's probably right. So Jesus is, is being rejected by his people because he's just the carpenter. And even in his healing, it's, it's limited in what 
what happens. So how does he respond? Well, it says in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Two things that jump out to me right here. He marvels at their unbelief. Same word that's used in Matthew 8 or 9. You go look that up. But it's in the, foot, in the footnote here. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Same word that's used. Remember the centurion comes to him and says, Jesus, will you heal my son? And he's like, I know you're busy. He says, I'm a general in the army. I got thousands. I got hundreds of men under me. I know what it's like to be busy. Don't, you don't have to waste your time and come to my house. Just say the word and my son will be healed. Is that how the story goes? And Jesus, is, Jesus marvels at this man's faith. Now the same word is used. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. I think you pause right there and you go, does Jesus marvel at me? And if so, would he marvel at my faith or would he marvel at my lack of faith? Would he marvel at my belief or would he go, after all you've seen and heard and you still don't believe, marvels at that, amazed by that. You'll hear people talk about being on the wrong side or the right side of history. The question I think that, that sort of popped into my mind studying this this week is, I want to be on the right side of amazement when it comes to Jesus. What is he amazed with in my life? So then it says that Jesus moves on and he, and he, he went about among the villages teaching. So he goes right back to doing the ministry of preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and building it up and he goes right back to doing the work he jumps right back into what he's been here to do all along it's fascinating so we get down to verse 7 and Jesus uh, will now commission the disciples he called the 12 and he, there's, there's more we know there was more than 12 disciples but these disciples are sort of they have this apostolic position where Jesus is going to send them out and and at one point he sends out more than just 12 and so this is sort of missionary work under the the ministry of Jesus the earthly ministry of Jesus he called the 12 he sent them out two by two so they go in pairs there's different thoughts on why that would be um that I think figure that out that that there's companionship there's partnership there's an old testament teaching that you need two witnesses to validate something, whatever, but he sends them out in pairs. I think for us, it's important to maybe find in that the model for how we should send missionaries out. I think it's dangerous on a number of fronts for a person to go it alone into the mission field. I think you, I've, I've heard that argument made. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So he, what he's doing is he's making them an extension of his ministry. This is what he's done with us in Acts when he ascended. He said, I all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he commands and commissions us to go proclaim and preach the gospel. So he's commissioning them. They're going to be an extension of his ministry. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So he gives them three, like this instruction. They're going to go out. He's going to give them the power to preach. They're going to have authoritative. They're going to they're proclaim his gospel with his authority. And, and they're, they're going to do miraculous things. And he, and he breaks it down into three things. First, he says, travel light. 
don't don't take a, don't don't bog yourself down with a bunch of stuff. And I think in that he's he's sending them out to live by faith, walk by faith, do what they're going to do, trusting and believing that he's going to provide for them. Do the work. I'm going to provide for you. Second thing he says to them is, enter into those homes that show hospitality, regardless of who they are. Don't look for the most comfortable house. He even says, if you're in one house, it, kind of the, the, the idea is, if you're staying in one house and then somebody else has got a nicer, posh house and they're like, come over here and stay with us. You just stay put. The first people that show you kindness just, he's basically saying where the door is open and what he's doing is he's putting the responsibility on the hearers in these towns to receive the apostles. He's like, don't show favoritism. Wherever the door is open, you go there. Then the third thing he tells them is, if the door is not opened to you, then shake the dust off and leave. And that's an old test. That's, that's a really intense sort of a, a handing over of these people, a disassociating with them because they're going to come under God's judgment is actually a very aggressive statement to make, to shake the dust off and leave. And so he says, travel light, do this by faith, embrace hospitality, preach and proclaim the gospel. If ultimately, if people reject it, they're rejecting me, not you, so you leave and move on and leave them to the judgment of God. And that's, by the way, that's the model of how we do ministry. It's the model of how we do business in the kingdom of God. We, we travel light. We don't rely on the things the earth provides. We live by faith, walk by faith, minister by faith, faithfully to the gospel. We trust the Lord to use us. When the door is opened, we walk through. We can't force those doors open. The Lord has to do that in the hearts of people. And ultimately, we leave it in the hands of God. And then... He says, uh, it says in verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. I think that's pretty straightforward. It's not they went out and did social justice work, as important as that is. And they did do that. They did care for the poor and, and, and minister to the hurting, but they called people to repent. What is repentance? It's a turning away from the control that you're holding over your own life, letting it go and turning to Jesus. It's a turning away from sin. It's a turning away from what the world offers for peace and happiness. It's turning to Jesus, leaving everything behind and putting your faith and your trust in Jesus as the source of salvation, but also as a source of joy and peace and happiness. And it says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they did incredible work. Concluding thoughts and applications. Let me give you half a dozen things here just to maybe jot down and take with you. I don't have them on the, on the screen, but I'll talk slow. Concluding thoughts and applications. First one's this. The people in Nazareth refused to open their hearts and minds to Jesus. And as a result, he, didn't move, he did not move in their midst the way he had in so many other places. So what that tells us is there is a direct connection to how we respond to Jesus matters in terms of what we will receive from Jesus. Now, we're a church that believes and holds a high and firm view of the sovereignty of God. We believe that he's the author of salvation. He's the author of our faith, that he alone can remove the, the, the scales that that, that we have over our eyes and reveal himself to us, that he alone can regenerate a dead soul, that he alone can bring conviction and drive us and draw us to repentance. He alone can do that. But ultimately, the Scripture teaches that we are to confess and repent and believe and submit 
and follow and proclaim. We have action that we're called to. The, 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 the scripture is very clear. These people refused to open their hearts and minds to the point that it, it, it made Jesus marvel. I think the second thing that we have to come back to is that question. I think it's worth asking myself this every day. Is Jesus amazed by my belief or my unbelief? Is he amazed by the way I live and put my faith and trust in him? Or is he amazed at my doubting unbelief and the fact that I don't accept as truth and gospel what he's revealed to me? The next one is, if it wasn't easy for Jesus and it wasn't easy for the disciples, then surely it's going to be really easy for us. No. False. If it wasn't easy for Jesus and he got rejected and it wasn't easy for the disciples and they got rejected, then we can expect it's going to be difficult for us to proclaim the gospel, to share Jesus with people, even to share Jesus' love with people that don't want to be loved. To proclaim a gospel of repentance, it's not going to be easy. Jesus uses the most ordinary of people to build his kingdom. He sends the disciples. I mean, verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and, he, and they healed them. That's pretty awesome. What did these do? What, like, what was on their resume before this? Fishing, which is an awesome resume. If you're a parker, nobody trumps that. Like, like. Yesterday, I was over to Parker's house, and they had the bass boat hooked up, and I said, somebody been fishing? Boone. I should have figured. Boone's been fishing. You know, he's a Parker. Imagine making a living fishing, and the next day, you're casting out demons and anointing people with oil, and people are getting healed, you know. It's pretty wild. If Jesus could use a bunch of fishermen, uneducated, there's one point where, remember, these guys were blown away that Jesus was a carpenter and he's got this wisdom and this knowledge and this authority. That'll happen to the disciples later where the religious leaders go, who are these men speaking like this? They're unlearned. They're uneducated. How do they speak with this authority? Jesus can use anybody. Next, life and ministry will have ebbs and flows, and we will experience highs and lows. But if we are consistent and faithful, we will see the Lord move in mighty ways. We will see those with unbelief profess Jesus as Lord and come to save in faith. Three more thoughts. Unbelief is the great hindrance that will thwart whatever ministry we might do. The thing that will thwart the advancing ministry of the gospel is unbelief unbelief at any level even even unbelief in rejecting the gospel but how about how about unbelief in taking a matter into your own hands because you don't trust the lord with it i need this to make me happy i need this to bring satisfaction i need this for my own healing it's a lack of belief in god if we don't trust the lord to do and be what he's promised he'll do and be in our lives come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and i'll give you rest He'll bring satisfaction in our lives. It's unbelief that will tell us otherwise. Jesus combats the unbelief in the world through the faith and belief of his followers. I think that's really important. Unbelief in Nazareth, what does Jesus do with it? He mobilizes his followers. They are men of belief. They are women of belief. And he uses those who believe to combat the unbelief of the world. And so he would do that in our lives. And last, we're called to proclaim the gospel, but it is critical that we live it out as we proclaim it. That we live lives of faith 
that we walk by faith, not by sight. That we recognize that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We are to proclaim the gospel. We're to live out the gospel. We're to live as men and women of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And that faith is in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight you would uh, draw to yourself those who don't believe. That you would bring with conviction and authority the truth of the gospel that, that you have the power to save. May we not be like those people in Nazareth who were amazed and impressed with your healing or your what seemed to be mystical or magical power, missing the point that it was not mystical or magical at all. It was supernatural because you hold all things by the word of your power. I pray that we would respond to you, not as those in Nazareth, but as those who believed and that our faith would be something you would marvel at. What an incredible thought, an encouraging thought. I pray that we would live to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.